Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 will be in verses 1 through 12. What is glorious? Ultimately, when we say something is glorious, especially in Scripture, it refers to splendor and majesty. And Jesus in this passage will begin to demonstrate and display his glory and his majesty to us. Many things have been called glorious. If you hang out with me, I don't say it as much as I say maybe excellent or some other words, but there are times where I'll jokingly say, it's glorious. And if you know me, you know that I'm joking because whatever I'm referring to as glorious is nothing close to being glorious. You may have heard about the Glorious Revolution. And as you think about the Glorious Revolution, you might not even know the historical details, but you probably have heard the term the Glorious Revolution. And you may not know that that includes the story of James II and how he was removed from power by the Prince of Orange and William III. But that's what happened. And the people of England still refer to that incident as the Glorious Revolution. And it meant that now Parliament has far more control than the king does. But that wasn't truly glorious. What truly is glorious, though, is recorded for us in John's Gospel. And Jesus begins to reveal his glory to us in John chapter 2. John chapter 20 verses 30 through 31 tell us that Jesus is performing signs throughout this entire gospel and that these signs are pointing towards a response that me and you need to take to who Jesus is. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so the big idea for John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 is that we're supposed to see Jesus' glory and respond in faith. We must see Jesus' glory and respond in faith. If you would, take your copy of God's word and follow along as I read. John chapter 2 verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there was set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that had been made wine, and did not know where it came from, for the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, 
And then when the guests have drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that your word would be spoken clearly and that it would have the desired impact on those who hear it today. We thank you for who you are. In your name we pray. Amen. It's an interesting text. And it's our first, like, full-on story that's just, like, about Jesus. And it's interesting, as soon as we get here, we see that there's a problem, right? There's a problem that is abundantly clear to us at the very start. But before we talk about that, let's talk about a couple other little things about the story and about who Jesus is. It's interesting, when Jesus approaches this situation, his approach is drastically different from John the Baptist. John the Baptist was in the wilderness and in the desert, and people were coming to him, and he was teaching them there. Jesus' approach is completely different. He's actually mingling with people. He's going to the events that they go to. He's with people. He's going to a wedding. And so we get there, and you have to understand some of the details of how they did weddings back then. These were elaborate celebrations that would last a week, and it'd be a nice, big, long party. It would be the probably the pinnacle moment of many people's lives. Very much like weddings here are, when you spend twenty or $30,000 on a day. That's kind of what they did, but they did it for a week. And it'd be the celebration of the bride and the groom. They'd be pretty much king and queen for the day. And so Jesus goes there. And then the text informs us that there is a problem. And what is the problem? The problem is that there is no more wine. Now, I do not suggest that you drink, but this text is not telling us to drink or not to drink. So the rest of my comments are not going to be concerning drinking. We can talk about that at another time. The text is actually pointing to Jesus, not to whether or not you should or should not drink. But I've recommended that you not drink. But there's a problem. They have no more wine. And this is a big problem because this is a small town. So think small town Iowa. If a problem happens in a family, everybody in town knows. So there's huge potential for embarrassment, but there's also evidence that shows that there's also the definite risk of legal action being taken against the groom and his family for embarrassing the bride's family because they could not sufficiently provide for the feast. So it's not just embarrassment. There's potential legal action involved with a lawsuit. So there's a problem. And Mary comes to Jesus, and you see that in verse 3. And she says, they have no wine. And we don't really know why Mary approaches Jesus. It says later on in the text that this is Jesus' first sign, so we can't assume that Jesus has done other miracles, and Mary's like, hey, Jesus, you did other miracles, so why don't you do this? 
It could be that she knew who Jesus was and what he was capable of, or it could be that Joseph has already passed away and Mary's depending on Jesus for her sustenance. And she's like, Jesus, you're a carpenter. Your dad was a carpenter. Maybe you have money. Can you help out this family? They're going to be embarrassed. There's possible legal action. But Jesus' response shows us that there is another problem. There is another problem besides the problem of the wine. He asks her in verse 4, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? And that is a rebuke. Jesus is rebuking his mom. And we shouldn't think as we look at this that the term woman is kind of like we think of the term woman. Like if you went to somebody in our culture in America and were to refer to them as woman and say this as a rebuke, the term woman would be derogatory. It would be a bad thing. You should think more of the idea of man. It's... Um, Shouldn't be understood, though, like a dad or a child referring to his mom as ma'am. Yes, ma'am in the South. That's not the idea. But it's a, it's a kind form of address. It's not like we think of the word woman. But the actual question that he asks, what does your concern have to do with me, is pretty much asking, what do we have in common? What do we share together? And you might be thinking, well, what? why is he asking that? And I think what Jesus is trying to get at is he's saying, He's no longer on the earth primarily to serve his mother, but to serve his father. Jesus' concern has changed. No longer is he here to primarily care for his mother and to serve his mother's desires and will. Rather, now that he is beginning his public ministry, his aim and his goal and his desire is to serve his father. And you see him talk about this desire that he has and this responsibility that he has in quite a bit of detail in John chapter 5, verses 30 and 36. If you would turn with me there, and we're going to be going a little further in John in a little bit, so keep your finger there and also in John chapter 2. Verse 30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus' responsibility is no longer to conform to and follow the desires of his mom. So he says, my purpose, my aim, is not primarily to care for you. And then verse 36, he picks up on the same idea. But I have a greater witness than John's for the words which the Father have given to me, the very works that I do, I bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Jesus has a higher aim than serving his mother and conforming to her desires. And he's trying to say, tell her that. He says, what do we have in common? That relationship that we had when I was your son and I was supposed to obey you is no longer there. I've begun my public ministry. I am getting ready to do my father's will. It's the same type of thing that he says when you see Jesus leave his family and he's in the temple yard and they come and they ask him, what are you doing? And he says, don't you know that I have to be about my father's business? It's the same type of idea. So ultimately, his responsibility as he serves his father is to glorify his father. John chapter 12, verse 28, you see this idea clearly presented as Jesus' purpose in serving his father. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from the heaven saying, I have both glorified it and 
will glorify it again. So Jesus' purpose, he's trying to tell his mom, is my purpose isn't primarily to serve you. I have a higher purpose. My purpose, my aim is to serve my father. And in doing that, I glorify God and I glorify myself. Mary must realize that her relationship with her son must change. She can no longer approach Jesus as son, especially as son only. She must realize that he is the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the promised King, and the Prince of Peace. She must approach him differently, and Jesus is pointing to this fact. The problem then is not a lack of wine. The problem is Mary's misunderstanding of who Jesus is and how she should approach him. So will Mary understand who Jesus is? And a bigger question for me and you is, will we understand who Jesus is? And will we approach him as the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings? But Jesus continues in John chapter 2, verse 4, and he says, My hour has not yet come. And if you like reading books, you kind of know how books work. Books put little things in them that you're supposed to see and go, hmm, I wonder what that means. What is that pointing to? Why does he include that? It's supposed to be like an inciting moment where you read it and you go, this is going to be further developed because this is really kind of veiled language. What does he refer to by the hour? Why does he talk this way? And Jesus is going to continue to develop that. So he says, my hour has not come yet, but we should anticipate and begin to ask, what is the hour? And just to relieve your anxious hearts, I'll kind of point to what Jesus is getting at. Jesus' hour has not yet come in these passages. John chapter 7, verse 30. He's going to have that type of language said about him. John is recording Jesus' Thoughts. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8 verse 20 uses the same type of language when John is recording Jesus' thoughts. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. But then as we get to the end of Jesus' public ministry, when he's going to transition to the short period of private ministry with his disciples before he goes to the cross to pay the penalty for my sin and for your sin, then the language begins to change and his hour has come. John chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus said, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Jesus understood that what he was going to do in John chapter 2, if he made the water into wine, would glorify himself. And he knows that ultimately his ultimate glorification is something that's still yet to come. And he says, my hour for full ultimate glorification has not yet come. John chapter 12, verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He realizes that this hour is imminent. It's something that's coming soon. John chapter 13, verse 1, same type of thing. Now before the feast of the Passover, 
when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus continued to love his disciples, even though he knew that he was going to be facing death. And then John chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. In Jesus' ultimate glorification on the cross and through his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus is most glorified. And through that, God the Father is most glorified. And Jesus says, my time for ultimate glorification has not come. And you need to understand that I have something greater in store than this little miracle. The danger is that we would get lost in this miracle. And we would be amazed by Jesus making water into wine. That is truly an amazing miracle. Because wine normally takes a while to become wine. It doesn't happen overnight. Well, it begins to happen overnight. But the full process to get to the kind of wine that Jesus made definitely doesn't happen overnight. You're going to see the compliment that is given to the wine by the master of the feast. So this passage then begins to point to the fulfillment of John's introduction in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we're seeing Jesus' glory revealed, but ultimately, this is not the culmination. And we can't miss that. Without the culmination... Without the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord, the rest of his ministry would not matter. And that's what Jesus wants us to see. It's good to be amazed. It's good to see the miracle and to be awed by who Jesus is. We should do that. But if we get lost in this moment, and all we see is a guy who can make water into wine in a matter of a couple minutes, and we fail to understand that ultimately there's a greater thing coming when Jesus will die and pay the penalty for your sins and my sins, then the miracle is of no value. The miracle is no value unless it leads to a change in me and you. And so have you missed the truth? It is possible, very possible, for you to come here week after week and yet have never placed your faith in Jesus' finished work. To be awed by all the miracles that are recorded through Scripture, to be awed by the power of the Holy Spirit, we say that he can equip you to honor and glorify God, and that can be awesome. And we can, we can talk about prayer, and we can talk about Jesus' unification of Jews and Gentiles, and we can talk about all sorts of things that are accomplished through who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And you can be awed by it all and yet never have personally placed your faith in Jesus. And that's what he's pointing to. He's saying there's a greater problem than the lack of wine. It's like the little video with the lady with the nail in her forehead and she's talking about the headache. And it's not about the nail. It's not about the wine. There's a greater problem. 
So a bigger problem is present. It deals with the heart. It deals with your heart. It deals with my heart. Have we personally placed our faith in Jesus? Have we looked at what Jesus has accomplished for us? Do we know that our sins are taken care of? Are we, are, are, or are we enamored by who Jesus is, what he has accomplished, and the fact that he is the coming king and he will establish a kingdom on this earth? There is a greater thing coming. Jesus will demonstrate his glory through this miracle, but something greater is coming, and we can't miss that. So what does the miracle include? Verses 6 through 10, let's refresh our memory. Verse 6. Now there was set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Do the math. Six times 20 or 30, that's about 180 gallons of wine. It's a lot of wine. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Then the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Jesus solves the problem, the physical problem, that is, And he gives the instruction to the servants, and they fill the things up to the brim. Why to the brim? I think in part to just demonstrate to us once again that there was no tampering with these water jugs. It's not like he magically added some condensed wine into the uh, jugs and, you know, diluted the wine so that the water wasn't actually became, became wine. It actually did become wine. The water became wine. But the master of the feast is amazed with the quality of the wine and rebukes the groom. He calls the groom aside and he says, well, this is really strange. Most everybody starts with the good stuff and then once people's senses are a little dulled, they pull out the bad stuff. I mean, this is a week-long celebration, you know. Once the senses are a little dulled, you give them the cheaper stuff and they don't know as much and they don't care as much because... They've been having a good time for the previous two or three days. And so he rebukes them, and he points to the quality of the wine. The point here is that the miracle was performed with excellent quality. It was performed perfectly. And as, as you look at John, John does not record every miracle that he did, right? We already looked at John chapter 20, verses uh, 30 through 31 or something like that where he talks about and many other signs Jesus did but these were recorded that you may believe okay the point isn't that well if you can do lots and lots of miracles you are God you are the Messiah that's not the point the point is Jesus does miracles that have excellent quality and that points to who he is and the master of the feast, not knowing where this wine came from, says, this stuff is the best. Why did you do it backwards? And it's because it wasn't intentional. It was not done purposefully. 
Then you see the solution in verses 11 through 12. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. This is ultimately the solution. You say, the solution? I thought we saw the solution in verses 6 through 10. The wine was made, face was saved, embarrassment was avoided, financial ruin averted. But that's not ultimately the solution that you and I need. The ultimate solution that we need has nothing to do with the wine. Jesus is pointing to the fact that he is being revealed and he is being revealed as God. The one who will come and has now died for your sins and my sins and we need to place our faith in his finished work. So the disciples saw the glory of Jesus and as a result they believed. You see in verse 11, the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It's not enough to just be enamored. It's not enough to just be awed by the fact that God could make water into wine in a matter of a few minutes of pouring water, 180 gallons, into six stone jars and then taking a glass to the master of the feast and presenting it. It's good to be in all of that. But it ultimately needs to lead to belief. And one of the dangers that you see throughout the Gospel of John is that some don't believe, even seeing the glory. We looked at John chapter 12, verse 28. But if you would, turn there again with me, and we'll look at John chapter 12, verses 27 through 41. And you see there that some saw his glory revealed in person, and yet they rejected him. John chapter 12, verses 27 through 41. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. And the people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, and how can you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, 
He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when we saw his glory and spoke of him. Some people don't believe even when they see God's glory. Some people, though, never have authentic faith. At the end of John chapter 2, you see this. This is after Jesus has gone into the temple and has cast out those who were there who were not using the temple the way they were supposed to. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify him of man, for he knew what was in man. Some people believed, but their faith wasn't real. It wasn't authentic, and Jesus knew it. Jesus knows us so intimately. Just like he could look at Nathaniel last week and say, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no uh, deceit. He knows the people in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Jesus knows you and I, and he knows whether or not we have authentic faith a theme throughout. You can be a disciple of Jesus and not have believed. John chapter 6 verse 26, that's a story of the loaves and the people following Jesus after he makes them bread and he gives them free food and he tells them, you're not following because you believe in me but because of the loaves. They saw the signs but their mind was on the loaves. And then last week, I looked at this passage with you, but I think it's so important that we understand the full context of John's theme statement. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. You see, Thomas was a disciple, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And yet he did not believe until after Jesus' resurrection. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came and the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me and you have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The disciple Thomas did not have life until John chapter 20. And that is a scary thought. We can be disciples. We can be actively involved 
We can be members of a church. We can be giving regularly. We can be serving regularly, but not be genuine disciples of Jesus and have never placed our faith and be trusting in our good works or our attendance of church or our family merit or something else to get us to be with Christ and to take care of our sin. But that does not care for our problem. There is a blessing, though, for us today who have not been able to personally see Jesus' miracles and believe. And I hope that you have that blessing. But what does this text mean for me and you today? We should be enamored by the glory of Jesus. Jesus' glory is demonstrated in full color for us here. Jesus provides miraculously. 120 to 180 gallons of wine in a matter of minutes. And the best wine that the master of feast had ever had. That's an amazing God. An amazing God who provides. And he continues to provide for me and you. And we should be enamored by a God who is that glorious. Are you enamored by him? Does it lead you to serving him? That's the purpose. It should lead you to believing and then as a result, serving. You should be sure that you are a genuine disciple. What are you trusting in? What are you placing your faith in? Is it because you're here? That doesn't cut it. Is it because you're serving? That doesn't cut it. Is it because of your relationship to Jesus? You're Jesus' mother. Jesus tells Mary in verse 4, What do we have in common? My hour has not yet come. Your relationship with Jesus, if it's even a family relationship, does not cut it. You need to place your faith in Jesus' finished work. And then point to Jesus' glory. Point to Jesus' glory. Are you praising Jesus for who he is, what he's accomplished in your prayer life? Are you thanking him for the sacrifice that he paid for your sins and for my sins? Are you praising him in your prayer life for all the blessings that he's given you? When you're at work, do you testify to who Jesus is and what he's done for you? Whether they be physical blessings or spiritual blessings. When you're at home with your kids, do you use the things that you have at home, the provisions that you have, whether physical or spiritual, to point to this is a God who provides? We need to be actively involved and not only being enamored with God, not only truly trusting Him as the means by which we have hope of eternal life, we'd also need to be pointing to the glory of Jesus as we go through our lives. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for who you are. We thank you for the fact that you are a God who is glorious. We thank you for the fact that you are a God who can be known by us and who has paid the penalty for our sins. We pray that we would not simply be enamored by you and we would not simply be people who point to you, but we would be people who trust you as our only hope for eternal life. In your name we pray, amen.